In professional sports, a franchise player is an athlete who is not simply the best player on their team, but one that the team can build their franchise around for the foreseeable future. Welcome to a brand new edition of Franchise Players here on Tobacco Road Sports Radio, TobaccoRoadSportsRadio.com. I'm your host, Desmond Johnson, here with you every Friday afternoon, giving you the latest in sports coverage here around the triad and beyond. Loaded show today. Of course, every other week we've got our guy, David Glenn, coming in in the sports buffet. He'll join us to talk about everything from the World Series to the Carolina Panthers and more. Uh, beat writer for the Winston-Salem Journal, Mark Pruitt's in the house. He'll give us a preview. East Forsyth, West Forsyth, one of the biggest games in the state of North Carolina. We got it for you right here along with two other high school football games live tonight on Tobacco Road Sports Radio. You can catch all of that action here starting uh, the East-West game starts at 730. Uh, so you can definitely catch us there. And on WTOB, we'll have it there. And on the NFHS Network, we got you covered. We're all over the place. So stick around. Get your Friday right over here at uh, Tobacco Road Sports Radio. Before we get to all of that, though, I had to go grab my guy, Chris Lee, WRAL Sports Anchor. Uh, what's up, man? What's going on? Uh, you know, nothing. Nothing. Yeah. Just yeah. just a just a regular <laughs> day. You know, just just happy to have somebody to talk to. You know. <laughs> so we we had planned to do this last week, and schedule wise, we couldn't do it, and so we moved it to this week. And I'm glad we did because in between those two Fridays. Your documentary dropped. Uh, new documentary. It's on WRL Documentary Channel on YouTube. If you are a history buff like myself or you're just interested in, in this topic, definitely go check it out. Um, it's called Ghost in the Stadium. Ghost in the Stadium. And um, I'm going to let you frame this, uh, Chris, because when I first went into it, you sent me the link to it yesterday morning. And I was in the middle of working. I was like, All right, cool. I got something to watch tonight when I get home. First thing I did when I got done with everything, I popped it on, started watching it. And when I first start, when the title thing comes up, I'm thinking, okay, this is going to be, you know, October theme came out around Halloween. We're going to be talking about haunted stadiums or something to that effect. (laughs) But that perception was blown out of the water about 15 seconds into it as uh, you went into what this is actually about. And it was right up my alley. Tell me how this idea began. Uh, What sparked this idea to do this documentary, Ghost in the Stadium? Yeah, well, th- first off, thank you for having me uh, on here. Uh, what's interesting about that is when I pitched this documentary to WRL, I wanted to pitch it for the week of November 18th when North Carolina plays at Clemson. I thought that would have been the perfect week to put that out there. And because you watch the documentary, you understand why. Uh, but then they pushed it up to October 25th. I never even thought about the Halloween aspect of it. And so I've, I have had a few questions about that before people watch. Um, <laughs> but as far as how it came about, um, Covering the Panthers uh, from you know WRL and WXII, I, I kind of already knew a little bit about the Good Samaritan Hospital being there on the site of Bank of, Mer- of, of America Stadium. And then I read a blurb that a lynching took place there, but I didn't really look you know too much further into that. Last year when NC State played at Clemson, the year before, you know, remember NC State beat Clemson in double overtime. So they sent us down to Clemson. And I'm walking into the media entrance and I look over to my right and I see this. Uh, this sign that said this is the a burial ground of former enslaved people and convicted laborers. And I was like, mm, that's weird. So I get inside and I do a little Google search and I read the AP article that had just come out the year before about that and that the, you know, the university just publicly acknowledged what that was. And 
And so after, you know, finding out a little bit more, of course, uh, the, uh, we found out that there's like over 500 or about 500, you know, uh, burials that, that are there, unmarked burials. And then I was reading Wilmington's live from David Zacchino and, uh, and mentioned William Rand Keenan and his, uh, part of the, uh, Wilmington massacre in 1898. And then I was like, wait a minute, that's who, that's who Keenan stadium is named after. Right. And so then I, I, then I knew, okay, let me take the little bit that I know about everything and read a little bit more about that. And then I went to this lady named Heather Leah, who works at WRL. She uh, does like our hidden history part. And she always writes about some interesting things in the area. And I was like, hey, have you heard about any of this stuff? I brought her to research and she said, no, I haven't. This is amazing. Let me tell you about Carter Finley Stadium. And then so now I had the fourth and I was like, wow, this needs to be something more than just a minute and 30 long package. I, I need to go to the documentary unit and actually make a pitch. And so um, I, I talked to a few people who I knew, you know, who were into uh, documentaries and doing pitches. I'm al- I was already doing one, a pro wrestling documentary. Right. And, um, and then went and made the pitch and, uh, and they were able to green light. And here we are. So I wanted to go, I want to go back to um, the, the Keenan story. Uh, it's the first one that's in the documentary. Yeah. Uh, so for those just now joining us, uh, WRL sports anchor, Chris Lee here, kicking us off here on franchise players this Friday afternoon, a uh, brand new documentary uh, now available on YouTube. It's called ghost in the stadium. It revolves around four different stadiums here in the Carolinas that have a, uh, a, a bit of a hidden history in terms of how they were built and what they were built on top of, or who they were named after mm-hmm. um, the, the, the Keenan stadium one really struck a chord with me because that that story is not taught in school. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it's not taught in school in any way. I never knew anything about it. Matter of fact, ironically, I first found out about it on a beach trip. My father-in-law lives in Wilmington and he has access to a private beach. He pays a certain fee to be able to drive his truck to this, this like kind of blocked off beach from the public. Right. And uh, while we were there, this was probably about six, seven, eight years ago. Yeah. He starts telling the story about how this beach came to be. And he, he's telling the story of the Wilmington riots in 1898 and that how the beach that we were standing on that we were enjoying was used to be the beach for the black people in Wilmington. Mm. And that, uh, during the Wilmington riots, an uh, angry mob of uh, white men stormed that beach and basically killed whoever was on the beach and basically claimed it for their own. So I, I and I was like, why do I not know this story? And like we went to uh, there's a park in Wilmington. Uh, that's got plaques there that are documenting it or whatnot. So it's all, I knew about the story then. And I was like, why are they not teaching this? And then when I watched your documentary last night, I'm like, Oh, he's talking about the Wilmington riots. Like I actually know about this. This actually happened. And uh, for people that don't know the, the stadium, North Carolina's football stadium, uh, Keenan stadium was named on behalf of William Keenan senior. Yes. Uh, but it, the money for the stadium was given to the, the university by his son, uh, yeah. Keenan junior. And for the longest, it was named after senior. And then this kind of people kind of found out about this. But I think it was around about 2017, 2018. It started getting 2018. Yep. Yeah. And, and I, I don't remember that like back then. Like it I was I, very quiet. Yeah. So it was, it was very so quiet, hidden. And then Carolina basically because I know everyone's thinking the same thing I was thinking at this point. In the documentary is like, we're going to have to change the name of the stadium. <laughs> like we're going to have to change. I, I don't see any other way around it. But yeah. by the time you got to the end of that segment, I was like, OK, I'm all right with, with it standing the way it is. But. I had to be explained why it's still Keenan Stadium. Can you explain why Carolina is not going to change the name of Keenan Memorial Stadium? Um, I, I don't know why, but there's I know that they North Carolina has been kind of slow to react to some of its uh, its history uh, that's there. 
one of the things that we couldn't fit into the doc, so you're you're getting this on your show, is uh, uh, William Sturkey, the professor that we had in there that you saw. Um, he was actually on his way out of Carolina when we um, interviewed him. Uh, this week, that interview happened in May. I'm sorry, in June. All the other interviews happened pretty much in August or September uh, because he was, you know, leaving. And um, he was telling us uh, things that I didn't even know about Carolina that, you know, because it is such an old institution came up in the 1700s that to fund Carolina, it, it came from public funds and part of the public funds was from uh, sold property. Well, if you just stop there, you think land. But a lot of that property was people. So wow. slavery funded the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And then he, he was also saying that a lot of he's like, you have to understand what the university was for that time. It was the public university that was there to serve uh, the, the slaveholding bourgeoisie of North Carolina. So people like William Rand Keenan, who came from slaveholding families, went to North Carolina to learn how to become better businessmen, better slaveholders, so they could take that back and go to their areas and build their businesses to go great, get bigger. So the people who were serving while they were there were also black people. So black people have been a part of UNC, but a lot of it for most of their history has been from a service or a slavery standpoint. Um, and so that was very interesting to me because those are things I didn't know. It just didn't fit into the dock, you know. Um, and then, um, you know, just talking about that and, and learning about, you know, kind of Keenan and, and what went about. Uh, basically, um, in 2018, the, the information came out and Carolina was more so like, uh, you know, we, we can't necessarily change the name because we have this moratorium against changing these names uh, for our buildings. That was so a very important part of the documentary. That's, too, a, huge, way, that's yeah. a huge part. So basically, they were just like, the easy thing to do is, you know, it's memorialized to senior. Let's take that plaque down and memorialize it to junior. So it could still be Keenan. And it was very quiet. I don't even remember that happening. And, you know, I covered a team, Yeah. Um, you know, and, it's, and a lot of people just don't remember that happening. So it was uh, something that happened that was very, very quiet at the time. I, I've been in Chapel Hill pretty much every year since 2018 doing uh, high school football state championships. And, uh, you know, some of the shots you guys had of that gate right there, like mm -hmm. I'm standing there like every year in December doing a game and that plaque that's sitting there. I never even noticed it had been changed that yeah. they changed the plaque over to uh, basically to stay. The, the stadium has been dedicated in honor of William Keenan uh, Jr. instead yes. of senior, who was not a slave owner, who was, uh, by all accounts, a prominent businessman in North Carolina and was not his father, but donated the money. But in, when he donated the money, it was with the idea that it would be in honor of his father when he donated the money. So Carolina just switched it to the son's name to avoid having to yeah. change the name altogether. Let me give you the timeline a little bit so, it, so it's clear for some folks. William Rankinen Sr. went to school at North Carolina from like, I think, 61 to six or 60 to 62, uh, starting when he was 15 years old. He left to go fight in the Confederate uh, into, into the Civil War for the Confederacy. Um, and so uh, he, you know, basically was a Carolina alum, ended up, you know, kind of have working uh, Keenan Jr., uh, basically wasn't even born during slavery times. He, he was he went to UNC in the early uh, 1890s and graduated in 1894 and then went on and became this, you know, hugely successful uh, millionaire uh, through railroading and, and other things, uh, railroad projects and gave a bunch of his money uh, before he died to UNC. Uh, and, you know, and a lot of it he wanted to name after he wanted the stadium particularly to be uh, memorialized for his dad. So. Yeah.
Now, um, with us here, WRL sports anchor Chris Lee uh, discussing the new documentary Ghost in the Stadium. If you are a, a historian or you're a history nerd or a buff like myself, you're going to really love it, especially here in the state of North Carolina. Uh, it's telling tales about things that you just don't get in school. Uh, they don't teach yeah. these things in school, sadly. Um, one of the other things that really stuck out to me, which actually reminded me of uh, an event that happened to me in high school, um, the Carter Finley uh, where NC State's uh, football stadium is built and Memorial Stadium, uh, Clemson, uh, where that's built. I've been to both. Uh, if you've ever been to Clemson, you realize that it literally it's it's just the university with a town kind of built around. It. It's not mm-hmm. like an Elon that's like grown out. It's yeah. literally once you see the paw prints like in the street, yeah. <laughs> like you kind of know where you that's are. It. It, yeah. That's it. There's nothing else out there. Um, with Carter Finley, Carter Finley is kind of. It's almost like it's well it is it's built on top of a former black community for the most part that they basically just kind of cleared out and built on top of yeah. and uh it, the whole thing the clemson one uh where there's basically a cemetery like right beside like you said at the opening of the segment uh in kernersville my senior year of high school if you're familiar with the layout of kernersville where cagney's restaurant is now there used to be a boston market in that building before and before that there was like a big two-story brick building that was like a sporting goods store there's woods behind it. And uh, one day myself and like two or three friends, uh, a friend worked at Boston Market. So we were in the back parking lot or whatever. And I noticed there was a grave site, like a, a tombstone sticking out of the ground just randomly in the forest back behind it. So we go back there and we find three or four more. And uh, the next day when I'm at school, one of the classes I was in is called Quest, where we just kind of did random like volunteer services and things like that around the community. Uh, senior year, I only needed like two credits to graduate back in 96. And uh, I told my teacher, we did some research and found out that it was actually a, a black graveyard uh, in Kernersville that mm. had been unmarked for like 150 years or something like mm. that. So we spent the whole school day. Our class went and cleaned up the graveyard. The state got involved, became a, a national historic site. It's there now. It's sitting there now. And you can easily see it from the back parking lot of Cagney's. But your story reminded me of that when you were talking about walking into Clemson's uh, media uh, gate and seeing that over on the side. And Clemson basically lets the fans use it to tailgate and to park and to do yeah. these things. And there's stories like this all over, like uh, look up, I think it's Baden Lake, where literally there was there was a town that was sitting here in North Carolina and they made a, a man-made lake and flooded the town, basically. Lake Norman. Lake Norman. There's a town at the bottom of that lake where the state flooded it to create a man-made lake. And it's, it was a black community. Um, it's just, it's wild to me that a lot of this stuff has never been really taught in history, yeah. you know, and stuff like this with the documentary you're doing or did really pulls this stuff out uh was there anything else because out, out of the four you did carolina's keenan stadium carter family for nc state uh memorial stadium for clemson and what's the fourth one i'm missing clemson state carolina. bank of america oh, uh keenan. yeah yeah that was the one i did know about that one uh, i can't remember how that came about the joe mcneely uh lynching from the uh, good samaritan hospital that used to stand on that ground was there any other schools that popped up when you were doing the research on this that you thought about adding and just didn't have enough time so I, I wanted to look into Duke. I wanted to look into uh, East Carolina and I wanted to look into Wake Forest and uh, Appalachian State. Yeah, maybe part two. And um, I know that for Duke, uh, I found out that the land that Duke owned came from a family called the Rigsby family. There is a gravesite close to Wallace Wade Stadium as well. But uh, the difference is it's not like this. There's not a scandal or anything behind it. It's it's from the Rigsby family who voluntarily sold the land to, 
you know, the Duke family to make Duke University, but they just asked that they could still hold this, you know, uh, graveyard there and keep it up. And that's, you know, that's there. Yeah. Um, didn't get the way this moved and how um, big the other stories were. I really didn't get a chance to really dig my, my you know, teeth into the other uh, places. And, and plus, just to be honest, um, you know, Carolina, you know, NC State, Clemson are, are bigger names than the other ones that I named as well. Yeah. I know that there was something recently at Appalachian State where they there is a burial ground on their campus as well, uh, formerly enslaved folks. And uh, I think it's somewhere close to their stadium. So there's wow. a there's a similar story. We just didn't have time to go out there and just kind of check that out and investigate it. But that's something that's been published uh recently but it's really desmond the story of america you know what i'm saying um you know go look at college campuses go look at uh highways go look at some parks go look at um you know just stadiums or arenas and a lot of times those things are covering up what used to be black communities and a lot of people like i've always wondered how did we go from being um you know emancipated from slavery to a lot of folks being raised in what is quote unquote, the ghetto, right? How does that happen? Yeah. Right. And a lot of the way it happens was through urban renewal or just uh, the way, you know, redlining or just different things that happened even with Lincolnville. So Lincolnville, this was a community. If you know, if you know anything about Raleigh, the, the black quote unquote side of Raleigh is the Southeast side of Raleigh. But when slavery was emancipated, black people were living in the North, Northwest, Northeast, Western parts of Raleigh, Western part of Raleigh is where Lincolnville is, Carter Finley Stadium. Um, and the, the county made a concerted effort to move a lot of that. There were 13 settlements other than, uh, you know, including Lincolnville that were black settlements, including Oberlin Village, which was renamed Cameron Village. And uh -huh. that's a whole nother story into yeah. it of itself. And people were funneled into the southeast part of Raleigh in the 1920s and 1930s. And that's how you get the current makeup of what Raleigh looks like. Uh, Bank of America Stadium, that we said in the dock, that area was the Brooklyn community. It was a uptown Charlotte was a black area. And for urban renewal, they were all pushed out to make what we see as, as um, um, you know, uptown Charlotte. And you see 277 and 77 going through there. So, um Honestly, a lot of times you can just follow an interstate, follow, uh, you know, these you know public areas. And that's where they are. Quick story. I was telling my sister about this when I went down to cover Duke at Orlando uh, in, in the NCAA tournament in March. And that's where my sister lives. And she was telling me, well, where you're going and way arena. Same thing. That used to be a, the Chitlin circuit uh, 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 theater for black folks in Orlando where the entertainers could come. That was the only place that they could. Uh, go at and it's literally right next to i4 and mm. going into a black neighborhood called paramore that orlando is currently basically trying to move into and do more around that area it, it reminded me of watching uh the documentary on black wall street in tulsa uh in oklahoma mm. where it's that exact same thing like literally uh the the community had they were prosperous they were self-sufficient for, for the most part had barbers and bankers and doctors and all this other stuff there and same thing angry white mob kind of comes through raises the town forces them all out and uh right now i want to say interstate 40 runs across where they had a mass like burial site for like those bodies or whatnot where a lot of them were never identified and now they, they literally built this interstate on top of it so it's split in half and a lot of people don't even know it's there so it's like all this stuff it it's such a good documentary uh you know people you. especially nowadays i feel like people are so quick to try to like to to try to push down history 
out of fear of whatever happened in the past being applied to themselves. And that's not what this is. This isn't a, this isn't a blame game. This isn't something where it's like, you know, you did this so you could find someone to blame for what happened 155 years ago. It's more of a, we're all better off if we know what happened in the past, because it is our history. Like this is how we got to where we are today. We need to know these stories. We need to know these things that happened in our state, you know? So and it, I, I think it also shows what like where we can go from there. Like when people say, like, how do we fix things? Well, if if my ancestors were landowners 150 years ago and now the land that they're that they owned is now Carter Finley Stadium, PNC Arena and all of the upgrades, the billions of dollars they're going to put into that in the next you know 20 years uh, to make it look better. Right. And they owned it and they probably got pennies for it. Well, now we know where to start, you know, and, and, and that's that's one of those things where, you know, there's so many of those. There's so many of those stories all around. And, and it's not a, it's not just about equality. It's also about equity. Yeah. Um, and that's one thing that a lot of our ancestors didn't get a chance wealth. to have. They didn't yeah. get a chance to to see the things that they built kind of, uh, you know, built up in, uh, in, in value. And another good example, Central Park. If you've been in New York, more than likely you've been to Central Park. That was a black community. Yeah, yeah. You know what I'm saying? And right. like, so we we have these stories all over the United States. This isn't just a Southern thing. The, I, dude, we could probably talk about this for an hour. I didn't mean to, to have the segment go this long, but it's just so <laughs> fascinating to me. I'm just like sitting there talking about it. I'm just like, man, there's so much of this out there. And I hope you guys do get a chance to do a second part of this because there, there's, I think you've tapped on something, uh, maybe not stadiums, but like, something to that effect and last time i i actually saw you we had talked about uh you doing the pro wrestling documentary so i can't wait for that now after seeing this one uh every just top notch go follow him on twitter at chris lee tv uh if you if you can find it on youtube go to the wrl documentary uh channel it's sitting right there if you follow chris on twitter i'm sure he's got the link up on his profile somewhere at this point definitely go check it out it is a fantastic piece of work if you love documentary stuff and just learning stuff about the state of north carolina and our history uh chris lee here in franchise players appreciate you brother thank you man coming up david glenn sports buffet can the carolina panthers get off the snide and win uh, game number one of the season we are seven weeks in uh <laughs> franchise players here on tobacco road sports radio.com franchise players are often referred to as the face of the franchise Welcome back to Franchise Players here on TobaccoRoadSportsRadio.com. Part of your TGF Friday lineup every Friday afternoon on WWBG 1470 AM in Greensboro. If you missed it, the encore is at 6 p.m. on WTOB 980 AM 96.7 FM out in Forsyth County. And, of course, you can catch it on TobaccoRoadSportsRadio.com. Our buddy David Glenn here in his bi-weekly joint into the sports buffet joining us now. What's going on, DG? How are you doing? I'm doing great, Des. Always good to be with you. Man, it is very, very busy. It's hot right now. There's all kinds of stuff going on, all four major sports going on right now. A lot of people say this is like the sweet spot of the year where you got Major League Baseball, NFL, NBA starting, NHL. Uh, so I'm going to try to hit each one. I want to start off with my Hornets. Um, 1-0, and uh, opened up with a win uh, on Wednesday night. They've got uh, Detroit tonight. And I'm just kind of sitting here fantasizing of, how exciting, how tantalizing would it be to mold a big three of Mark Williams, LaMelo Ball, and rookie Brandon Miller? Because Mark Williams, uh, this I, now I know it's one game, <laughs> and I'm kind of yeah. using I'm using what he did last year, but Mark Williams looked like a man playing against little kids uh, in game one the other day. He had like a 
like one of those Debo, like snatch the ball out the air type blocks uh, he's <laughs> all over the place. And if he's grown from year one to year two like this, is Mark Williams the most important piece on this team? He's certainly one of the most important pieces. And we got a great look at him at Duke about how a big man can impact the game first with his rebounding and defense, and then occasionally by putting up some good numbers offensively. And this Charlotte Hornets team really needs that sort of old-school big man production, right? Uh, P.J. Washington can score. Terry Rozier can score. LaMelo Ball can score. Brandon Miller can score. So whatever points Mark Williams gives are just kind of icing on the cake. If he can block shots that way, what do you have, 15 boards in game one, man? As you said, it's only a one-game body of work, so we can't go too crazy. But that's a really promising start for the Hornets. This franchise has been mostly irrelevant. Given that sports menu that you just described, Des, the Hornets have been way down the ladder behind the Panthers in the NFL and college football and college basketball and even the Hurricanes and the NHL Mm -hmm. in terms of just what most across the state care about most. Uh, With that lineup and that nucleus that I just described, plus Gordon Hayward, plus others, uh, and a good coach, I think at least the Hornets have a chance to be interesting. And if they figure out a way to be a playoff team, um, that's a huge step in the right direction. Uh, Williams had he only played about 30 minutes uh, on Wednesday night, shot 83% from the field, uh, 100% from the free throw line, had uh, 15 rebounds, 13 points, uh, three steals <laughs> and a block. P.J. Washington had a game. Uh, the newly re-upped P.J. Washington had uh, 25 points in that contest. Gordon Hayward. It was it was fun to see Gordon Hayward and LaMelo Ball out on the court at the same time. Uh, I think a lot of us have forgotten that, you know, as much as Gordon Hayward's been injured, when he's been on the court and healthy, the Hornets have been a, a middle-of-the-pack Eastern Conference team, like fourth, fifth, sixth type seed type team. If he can stay healthy, and then who knows what's going to happen with the Miles Bridges situation. We talked about that two weeks ago. Uh, he's currently going to serve the 10-game the suspension, but it doesn't appear that anything is looming in terms of further punishment or anything with Miles. So it almost sounds like the Hornets and the NBA were aware of whatever this was already, or it's already been decided, whatever the case may be, it doesn't seem like there's anything urgent coming down the pipeline uh, regarding Miles Bridges and that situation. But Hornets Hawks, that's uh, tonight, 8 p.m. You can catch that here in the triad, powered by Tobacco Road Sports Radio on WWBG 1470 AM. So you can count that tip here tonight. Uh, North Carolina Sports Network personality, David Glenn here with us. Let's move over to let's move over to the Panthers. Um, <laughs> he says, he says with a sigh. <laughs> I've been talking all week. I had to do a hit for Houston radio last night. And, um, and of course, you know, they believe in Panthers and the keep pounding podcast network and stuff. So I'm in bed with the Panthers till death do his part good and bad. But right now I feel like it's zero and six of the, by the fault, the worst team in the league. But yeah. I don't really feel like they're an zero and sixteen. Do you? Am I weird <laughs> for like, <laughs> like the positive aspects of what I'm seeing and feeling like? Because I'm look, I'm always looking at the glass half full when it comes to them this year. Like we're six games in. Yes, I'm like, well, that's only a third of the season. Like we still have, you know, eleven games to go, and our division's a train wreck. Like I'm, I'm not saying the Panthers are going to make a playoff run or anything like that. But is it really as bad as what a lot of fans are making it out to be? Where we need to fire Frank Wright? bench Bryce Young, yada, 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 just because they're 0-6? 
Well, I do think, you know, what's the old Bars Bill Parcells line is you are what your record says you are, right? That is true. <laughs> and when there's uh, 32 teams and there's only one that's 0-6, the starting point is going to be really ugly. Uh, now, when you peel the onion a little bit and you dive into the details, so much depends on your optimism or not about a head coach in Frank Reich who had some good years in Indianapolis and as an assistant before that, you know, helped the Philadelphia Eagles win a Super Bowl. Uh, but he also had some bad years in Indianapolis and missed the playoffs. And this is a really rough start um, under David Tepper, given how horrible the Matt Rule tenure was. It has a lot of uh, Panthers fans kind of on pins and needles. Uh, and it really depends, of course, also on your long-term optimism or not on the number one overall pick at quarterback, Bryce Young. Uh, in that area, I think people are reaching for the panic button a little bit early. In other words, those Panthers fans reaching for the panic button on this season, I think are justified. I think it's going to take something miraculous to make the playoffs because as mediocre as the Falcons and the Buccaneers and the Saints appear to be, it's unlikely that all three of them are going to face plant, right? So, so it's going to be really tough to win the NFC South, even if the Panthers improve from week to week. But in terms of that bigger picture, just the broader horizon, I do think there's a lot of overreaction on the future of Bryce Young, given the absolutely horrific nature of quarterbacks drafted number one overall in the history of the NFL. I mean, you know the numbers, man. It's it's Andrew Luck was good right away, and he had a good supporting cast. And truly, even guys who ultimately became Hall of Famers had mediocre to horrific rookie numbers, even after being the number one overall pick. That is embedded in the history of the NFL at the most important position on the field. Bryce Young obviously is, is showing his youth and his inexperience, but he hasn't lost his head. He hasn't lost his composure. He's getting credit for his leadership and his film study and, and you know just kind of keeping his head on his shoulders in a secure type of way because adversity can bring a lot of things out of people and sometimes brings out the worst part of somebody. We haven't seen the, you know, the worst part or the bad side of Bryce Young. And I think that means, especially he and his relationship with Frank Reich, that needs more time to grow. Do you think, um, say this gets really bad, like say they finish like two and 15 or something weird. Is Frank Reich a one and done because we've yeah. seen it more often than not in the NFL more so than we used to back in the day. Um, the team we're about to play Sunday, the Houston Texans, they've done this multiple times uh, in, in the past couple of years. Um, it, I could almost see a situation where David Tepper begins to worry about losing the young assistants he hired by keeping right. And maybe, maybe he wants to elevate Thomas Brown or uh, Ajiro uh, to head coach uh, the offense and defensive coordinators. Um because they did interview for head coaching jobs, uh, including the Texans. Uh, so do you think that, do you think Frank Wright gets longer than a year if this thing completely bottoms out this year? Or is it one of those situations like with uh, Matt Rule where it literally took the team starting to like literally tune out Matt Rule before he got the, the, the can? I think there's three things going on here. Number one, we know that David Tepper is an uber competitive guy and is embarrassed at how the Carolina Panthers have performed on his watch. So David Tepper's legendary impatience in the business world, where he's been incredibly successful as a mega billionaire, obviously. If I were Frank Reich, I would keep in the back of my mind, David Tepper is not going to be embarrassed for, for much longer. But the other things in play beyond what you mentioned about that dynamic about not wanting to lose assistant coaches, 
there are still 11 games to go. So whether you finish two and 15 or seven and 10, those are two very, very different things, right? If you finish seven and 10, that, that would mean you went seven and four the rest of the way. Hey, uh, yeah. Right. <laughs> and, and no, nobody's getting fired if, if that happens. Uh, and then, and then, you know, the deal Des. this works in your world, my world, and even in the NFL, the devil is often in the details. It is one thing to lose. And it is another thing beyond what we can witness from the outside. What does David Tepper see and know behind the scenes? Do the players like, respect, and are willing to play hard for Frank Reich? If the answer to that is yes, David Tepper would know in a way we on the outside really can't know Thank the you. truth serum answer to that. Right. Those owners have spies and squirrels and you know avenues to the behind-the-curtain stuff that even the best reporters often can't get to. And it's that that third part of the three things I mentioned that is the hardest for us to guess from the outside because an ugly season with a soured culture is not going to be tolerate, tolerated by David Tepper. An ugly record where maybe he sees culture that can grow in a positive direction, I, I, I think given it's only one year, he gives Frank Reich the benefit of the doubt. But again, he knows those things in ways we can't know, and that's what makes it hard to predict. I'm glad you I'm glad you phrased it that way, because that's uh, an argument I've had with fans for a couple of weeks now where I'm like, it's not the same situation as before. And when Matt Rule finally got fired, they literally had bottomed out. It was after that San Francisco game at home. It was covered in red like the entire stadium. Uh, My my podcast co-host Jonathan Stewart was at that game on the field before uh, it started. And he texted me and Skylar Callahan from Sports Illustrated and was like, man, this might be the last day for Matt Rule because the entire stadium is in red, like the 49ers took it over. And you could right. see it on the TV and then the performance. So you kind of you kind of knew that was probably going to be it. With Frank, though, I don't feel like this team is not playing for him. I don't think that's the issue. It honestly feels like injury. Like injury is the yeah. number one reason why they have not been able to finish some of these games. And the fact that four of their first six were on the road and two of those four were at Miami, at Detroit, <laughs> who were at the time right. like the hottest teams in the league. Uh, and we're going in there wounded. Like literally, I think last count, there's seven defensive starters on IR right now, I yeah. believe. Like 11 total, I think, are on IR right now. We're starting to get some guys back. Austin Corbett, I don't know if he's going to play Sunday, but the right guard who started all of last year that was kind of the stabilizer of that line has not played a lick this year. So that should help Bryce. Um, before I get you out here real quick, if you had to draft over again, would you draft a C.J. Stroud or would you still uh, draft a Bryce Young? Well, that's a great question. I haven't watched Stroud closely enough to have a great answer to that. I remember that's as fair. I was doing my my own just kind of from afar evaluations, I did not like Anthony Richardson nearly as much as many in the NFL liked him. So I, I kind of put a line through him right away. He's just not – I don't believe that in the long run, his beautiful skill set at the college level is going to prove to be a consistent success story at the pro level. Maybe I'll be wrong. We've all been wrong about these things. No, I agree. With you. I kind of put him in the RG3 kind of category where he's fun to watch, but I don't know if it's sustainable for a long period of time. I'm with you on that. I mean, you know, Stroud versus Bryce Young, I think, is a closer call. I've watched all of Bryce's games, and I don't have any reason to reach for the panic button there. I have not watched Stroud as closely. Uh, I remember, you know, believe it or not, and you've been around long enough, you were here for this debate too. I'll never forget being asked on every show I did. Must have been 100 shows. It sounds like a weird question now, but would you rather have Deshaun Watson of Clemson 
or Mitch Trubisky of North Carolina. Yeah. And, and of course, they were in the same league. I saw them. I saw all of their games every year for multiple years. And at the time, it was an easy answer for me. I just Deshaun Watson, no doubt about it. Now, we I had no idea about the personal stuff that would end up being part of the equation. Yeah, I don't know what he's but, doing now. Yeah. But <laughs> as a football player, with all due respect to Mitch Trubisky, who's, you know, set some records at Carolina and to his credit was a multi year starter in the National Football League. It's not like he face planted, but th that was crystal clear in my head. I didn't have a crystal clear differentiation between Bryce Young and, and C.J. Stroud when they were coming out of college. And as I sit here today, I'm still not sure if I have a, you know, an absolute confident that's my guy between the two. There's a chance both succeed and there's a chance both kind of fizzle out. Um, that's the nature of the NFL, even at the top of the first round. Uh, it's been that way for a long time. And at that position, man, I, I was a goalie in hockey. I was a pitcher in baseball. I played some complicated positions. I think quarterback is the most complicated position in any sport that we follow. Uh, and it shows up mentally, emotionally, physically. It's just a bear, man. Um, so those who do persevere and survive, I, I'll tip my cap to all of them. Uh, but my guess is that both Stroud and Young are going to turn out to do more good than bad as starting NFL quarterbacks. They're going to be intertwined their careers for the rest of their careers. It's yeah. just the way it is when you go number one, number two overall, like yeah, Peyton Manning, Ryan Leaf, that kind of thing, where they're just going to be attached to each other. So we get to see the first uh, matchup between the two Sunday uh, on Fox. It's a home game. They're actually inducting Moose Muhammad and Julius Peppers into the Hall of Honor, which is fantastic, too. So we'll have a lot of Panthers nostalgia going on uh, during the Panthers game on Sunday. I was going to ask you World Series, but I'm not even going to bother with that because your yeah. Phillies didn't get there. My Braves didn't get there. We're just, you know, it's going on over here on the side. Maybe we'll get to it uh, when I have you back in a couple of weeks. But uh, could talk forever, but got to get you out of here. I'm up against time. Uh, DG, follow him on Twitter at uh, David Glenn Show and go follow the North Carolina Sports Network. Appreciate you, brother. It reflects your kindness to not ask a lifelong Philadelphia <laughs> Phillies fan a baseball question at this sensitive time. Always good to be with you, Des. Keep up the good work. Beat writer Mark Pruitt from the Winston-Salem Journal joins me next to preview one of the biggest high school football games in the state. And, of course, we have it right here on WTOB later on tonight. East Forsyth taking on West Forsyth in the village for the Central Piedmont Conference crown. It's going down tonight. We'll be out in Clemens. We'll get a preview next.